Kia g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 75. Go sports team, go! This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Brendan. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. It is the first day of 2022 here in New Zealand, and I hope all of you had a great Christmas and New Year's. Now that the celebrations are over though, it is time to get back to it and learn some more about our past. So buckle up, because my December break was spent preparing heaps of episodes for you to be released over the next six months. Today, we're going to start looking into something a little different compared to what we have done previously. Whereas most topics we have covered so far have mostly had some sort of practical element to them, whether that be for worldly health, such as food, clothing and shelter, or spiritual health, such as karakia, this episode we're going to be talking about activities that pre-European Māori did just for fun. Things like sports and board games, called taonga takaro in te reo. Of course, it can be, and should be argued, that these are important for health as well, whether that be physical, mental, or spiritual. But you see a lot of discourse around Māori being a quote-unquote Stone Age society, with all the cultural assumptions that comes with it. And I want the next few episodes, more so than previous, to really work to dispel that myth. So hopefully, over the next eight or so episodes, we'll have a better understanding of one of the aspects that binds humanity together. The desire for a bit of fun. Where I think we will start is the sports that involved running around a bit, or otherwise required a fair amount of physical exertion. Some games that were focused more on mental ability could also involve physical elements, but wouldn't require nearly as much sweat. Māori had a whole range of physical games, from really straightforward ones that involved seeing who could toss a large rock the furthest, to complex games that had a lot of similarity to modern sports like rugby. Some of these would be competed in at festival and competition events to see who was the very best in the region. These festivals were called kaipara festivals. Each of these festivals, and what events they contained, varied from iwi to iwi, as they would reflect what kind of skills were important in the environment that they lived. What I mean by that is South Island iwi, who lived near mountains and had to frequently cross them, would likely hold marathon-style events to collect pounamu, whereas iwi that spent a lot of time on the coast may have events more catered around the water, such as swimming or waka races. Naturally, you wanted to test the abilities that competitors probably had a good deal of skill in, which were likely the ones that resulted from the sort of landscape they lived in. It also helps that the sort of events and skills that audiences would want to see tested are the ones most relevant to them. There's a reason that New Zealand, an island nation, tends to be good at and enjoy watching rowing and sailing type events at the Olympics. Whatever the event may be, they were usually designed to test the strength, endurance, stamina, speed, or agility of the competitors. As mentioned, Māori engaged in that favourite of human pastimes, arguably the oldest sport in the world, that I think nearly every culture has invented. That sport being, see that heavy thing over there? Wanna see who can throw it the furthest? 
In fairness, they weren't always something that was really heavy. Spears and poi could also be used, but large rocks were definitely involved. These types of throwing events were called tomahekeheke, though that word nowadays seems to be more of a widespread term, meaning games or competitions. To go back to the Olympics as an example, tomahekeheke o te ao is the te reo term for that event, but then again, linguistics is tricky and there are always nuances and exceptions. The rocks themselves would be about 20 to 30 kgs, which was possibly meant to simulate the weight of the average moa. As for the spears, they would often be made of manuka and be about 1.8 to 2.5 metres long, so they were quite substantial. The idea behind using these items was to build up muscle, particularly in the arms and legs, as well as coordination. This type of exercise and developing these skills were, as you might expect, quite useful for warfare. These events acted as good training for the real deal, and were considered to be kind of like arenas for that purpose. We even get a particular account of these skills transferring directly to the battlefield during a siege of a Nati Kahununu Pa at Fakaki Lagoon in Hawke's Bay. The ones doing the sieging were from Waikato, and their rangatira invited a rather famed Kahununu man, Tereto Orerangi to leave the pa to show off his spear-throwing skill. Tereto selected a man quite some distance behind the chief, saying he would throw it at that bloke to prove his prowess. However, as the Waikato Rangatera turned to look at the targeted man, Tereto threw the spear at the much closer chief, the spear apparently going clean through him and killing him instantly. This must have put the shits up the Waikato army, as they didn't ask for a second demonstration. Running, as it turns out, is another one of those pastimes that crosses time, space, and culture. Takaro Oma Oma included all sports of running events, both long and short distance. Sprints were usually about 70 metres, where they would run to a rako, stick, on the ground. Alternately, they could be 140 metres, which meant that once they reached the stick, the runners would sprint back to the starting line to complete the race. These 140 metre sprints would sometimes involve carrying a heavy rock as well, to really test their mettle. As for longer races, these would be set between a certain period of time. To make it nice and easy, this was often sunrise to sunset, so approximately 12 hours. And they would need all 12 of those hours, because the distances that they would often be running were more than 100 kilometres. For reference, the current 100 kilometre world running record sits at 6 hours 9 minutes for men and 6 hours 33 minutes for women, set in 2018 and 2000 respectively. These records, while certainly extremely impressive and at the pinnacle of what the human body can achieve, were set with modern running shoes on sealed roads. Māori didn't have those luxuries. Their races would be more than likely run barefoot, or at most with some harakeke sandals, all cross-country, likely some rugged country at that. As a bit of an aside, New Zealand holds the women's world records for 1,000 miles, which took approximately 12 days and 14 hours to set in 1991, and the six-day running record at 883 kilometres set in 1990. 
That's 83 miles and 147 kilometres a day respectively. Anyway, one particular race that Māori ran was the Tōpiri, an 80km run done in teams of two, where each team had to hold the neck of their partner the entire race. I'm not really sure how this would logistically work, it sounds rather difficult, or how it would be policed. I assume there was just an honour system. Either way, it sounds like a good spectator sport. In most of these races, the runner would leave a stone or other object at the halfway point before turning back to return to the starting line to complete the race. This was to show that they had made it to that point in case anyone was doubtful that they hadn't done their run entirely legit. Again, these long distance races could involve carrying something heavy, like rocks, but this time they would carry them on their backs in harnesses rather than in their arms. Aotearoa is a rather mountainous place, with the Southern Alps running up the South Island and the North Island being dotted by volcanoes. Naturally, lots of Māori lived near these mountains, hills and other geographical phenomena, which would most often contain walls of rock that had decent handholds. So, they would see who could climb them the fastest in a competition of strength and agility. This is mostly what it says on the tin, and there isn't too much else to say about it, other than competitors would sometimes try to distract or put off their opponents by throwing stuff at them. Things like poitoa, small sticks, or even stones. Poitoa were also used in their own contests as well. These differed from regular poi, which were usually filled with ropo or other soft plants, and instead contained rocks meaning they were weighted and potentially used as a weapon of some kind. So they would probably be pretty brutal when being thrown at you when you were climbing a wall of rock with no harness. When used as the competition piece in their own right though, one poi would usually be used by two people, one throwing and one catching. The idea was to throw the poi as far as you could and catch it on the full. The team who was able to do so over the largest distance would be declared the winner. A slightly different version of this was to throw the poitoa straight up into the air and recite a karakia or some piece of verse as fast as they could while their teammate tried to catch it. It isn't totally clear how this game was won, but based on other games we will talk about later, it's possible that whoever made it through the most of the speech before their poi was caught successfully was the winner. One of the interesting things I found while looking into this is that I automatically had the picture in my head of the poi being caught by the ball or head part, known as the ki in te reo. That to me sounds like the most natural way to catch it, as it's the heavy part that's shaped like a ball. However, Māori considered it poor form to catch the poi by the ki, potentially because catching a pouch of rocks that's flying towards you isn't exactly advised by doctors. Instead, they caught it by the rope that would be trailing behind it, which I think would be much harder and much more impressive. Not all poi was as competitive though. Some games could be just that. Games that were more for fun rather than any serious competition. These could be quite simple, such as who could swing the most poi around without making a meal of it, or throwing games similar to what we just talked about sometimes with spinning the poi first before throwing it. 
Poi were also used in relay races, where the poi would take the place of the modern baton, being passed between runners, with part of the race being that you had to keep the poi spinning the whole time. Occasionally, obstacles would be placed on the ground to make the race a bit more interesting. On the flip side, poi could also be used in more complex games, such as a game called ruru. Like before, this was a poi game that involved reciting something. In this case, it was a verse of a song called Kakotahiti. This song was involved in a few different games that had the same reciting mechanic, so it sounds like it was a fairly well-known song, at least in some areas of Aotearoa. The idea behind Ruru was to throw the poi up into the air as high as you can. Once released, they would begin reciting Kakotahiti, hopefully finishing before the poi came back to them and they had to catch it. If they couldn't complete it, they would throw the poi again and continue reciting the verse from where they left off. The objective was to complete the song in the least amount of throws possible. If you missed a catch though, you would have to start from the beginning while retaining your current count of throws. More modern versions of this game use songs like Poie. Poirako is a game that actually doesn't involve poi at all, though it's possible that it did at some point. This game uses sticks, or korari, which are the seed stalks of the harakeke. Korari were considered to be quite good to use as practice weapons, even for rangatahi, so they could be adorned with fur or feathers. The idea of poirako was to have a group of people stand in a circle, and one person at the centre of the circle. The person in the middle would be holding the korari and then throw it to someone in the circle, who would then pass it to either the person on their right or left, who in turn would pass it back to the person in the middle. The catch was that everyone would sing a song or recite a chant as they clapped and stomped their feet, and as such, the korari was meant to be passed and thrown in time with the beat. Players were encouraged to assume a similar stance to that of when they wield a taiaha, when they catch the korari, before throwing it back, helping to build that muscle memory of how to handle a real weapon. A slight variation on the game would have players hold their hands behind their back until it was their turn to receive the korari, at which point they would obviously need to bring them forward, otherwise they'd be hit in the face. More than one korari could also be used to make things more challenging, sometimes up to a dozen. Both these alterations serve to help test and improve the player's speed and agility. As I mentioned before, korari were used by rangatahi to play fight with, as they wouldn't cause any long-lasting injuries, along with being good practice staffs for even more seasoned fighters. In general, Korari took the place of Taiaha in both games and practice fights, given that the Taiaha was an actual weapon that could do lethal damage, as well as the fact that it was considered to be quite tapu. You wouldn't bring a Glock to a water pistol fight, you know? A lot of games that used Korari were like Poirako, in that they involved throwing the stalk around to build muscle, as well as to get them comfortable with things flying around and towards them, something they would likely experience in battle. Back to actual Poi though, by best time, that is the early 20th century, he observed that Poi was mostly a female-only pastime. Though 
He kinda implies that men may have been more active in the realm of poi in the past, using it as a form of exercise and keeping up their skills for warfare. In case you are unfamiliar with poi and have just spent the last few minutes wondering what the hell I've been going on about, they are harakeke balls filled with ropor, or some sort of other soft plant, or rocks as mentioned before, and are attached to a flax string, occasionally adorned with kuri fur. They would also be made with light wood, but these were pretty rare. Later, canvas would be used instead of harakeke. These are swung around by the string being held in one hand, with the other hand being used to hit the poi against, causing it to bounce back in the opposite direction. When the poi hit the hand or arm, it makes a satisfying thud, which can be used to create a rhythm, with multiple people swinging poi amplifying the effect, and sometimes with singing. Poi performances were often done as an evening's entertainment, both in the sense of whānau slash hapu settling in for a quiet night to watch the youngins perform, or as a more professional entertainment at a larger gathering. In the case of the latter, how well the performance went was thought to be indicative of the outcome of why everyone was gathered there in the first place. For example, if the reason they were there was to negotiate a marriage and the performance went well, it would indicate that an accord would be struck between the two parties, and vice versa if, say, the performers were constantly out of time. In the past, I'm talking like a hundred or so years ago, scholars thought that poi and its use in performance was linked to phallic worship. Because, of course they did. Even Best, who is not known for being the most culturally aware individual, acknowledges that there is no evidence for this, and as such, it is unlikely to be true. In general, it seems that poi weren't used for much spiritual purpose, unlike haka. Poi was mostly performed for entertainment, or as a show of dexterity, with a little bit of divination type stuff thrown in there, but that wasn't its primary purpose. Interestingly, Best mentions that Māori didn't seem to like poi, or dancing in general, without any singing or music, potentially because they saw it as being a bit boring. He adds that this was a bit different to Europeans, who I guess he was implying that they liked dancing for the sake of it, and didn't need music to have a good time. However, in typical Elston Best fashion, he doesn't really expand on the idea. Games were almost unlimited in their variety, and were very much done just for fun or for a bit of friendly competition. But most of them did encourage the use or development of a skill or to build up muscle. Kuti Kuti was a game that was about holding your breath, which is a pretty important skill to have if you were expected to be doing lots of fishing or diving, as well as of course the more meditative aspect of it. However, this game didn't involve any water. In fact, it didn't exactly entail holding your breath either, at least not in the sense that you stood there not breathing at all. Like the game Ruru, Kutikuti was a recital game that also used kakotahi tea, though rangatahi would use, oh boy, here we go, taumata whaka tangihanga kowowo o tamatea turipu kaka pikimonga horunuku pōkai whenua ki tana tahu. Partially because it was easier, but also because it also had some novelty as the longest place name in Aotearoa. 
Whatever they decided to recite, the aim of the game was to say as much of it in one breath as possible, whilst also doing some specific hand and arm gestures. These gestures would begin by opening and closing the hands before bending the arm in a particular movement. This bending movement, representing the particular part of the song that they were reciting, chaining the movements together. Less skilled players would use a movement for a sentence or phrase, whereas more skilled players would do a movement per word at a much faster pace. Kutikuti is a bit unusual in that it isn't quite a physical game like the others we have discussed, or at least it doesn't involve much movement. Karo, on the other hand, was basically all physical movement, though I'd partially hesitate to call Karo a game. The way it worked was, uh, well, people would just throw shit at you, and you had to dodge it. Stuff like poi, korari, ki, toy toy, stones, or apparently even kites were thrown at players, with the hope that they would dodge them. This to me sounds like some adults just wanted to shut their rowdy teenagers up and relieve some stress at the same time, so they decided to hiff at them whatever they had lying around. Whatever the case, this did have a benefit of improving the agility of the people having to dodge, as it would help in battle to be able to dodge projectiles and other weapons, especially since the Māori combat style relied a lot on being fleet of foot rather than just tanking damage. Nonaki was also a very physical game, in that it was essentially the Māori form of wrestling. Again, this was a very popular sport for all of humanity. This one being, you look tough, I bet I could kick your ass. That's oversimplifying it quite a bit though, as there was a whole lot of tapu and tikanga around it all, which was collectively referred to as rongomamo. Tohunga were the main group of people who kept the sport alive, keeping the knowledge of the rules and the various moves that would be used. What's really amazing is this information managed to be passed on despite the passing of the Tohunga Suppression Act of 1907. The moves themselves were said to have been gifted from various atua, and each move reflected the particular domain of the god that it was associated with. For example, Tafirimatea, atua of wind and storms, gifted throwing techniques such as grasping the legs to lift and throw. Tane Mahuta, Atua of the Forests, gifted techniques that were performed in the upright position, such as a body grip or thrusting out the leg, whereas Ruamoko, god of volcanoes and earthquakes, gifted techniques that were performed on the ground. Nonoke was played by both men and women, sometimes with the two sexes going head to head. As far as we know, there wasn't too much consideration to what the sex of the person was when deciding who they would go up against. What mattered was your ability. So if a man and a woman were thought to be evenly matched, there wouldn't be any issues in pitting them against each other. In saying that, both sexes tended to favour certain styles of wrestling, with women preferring chokes and holds that required more agility, and men preferring more brute strength techniques. Like with many other sports of a similar nature, Nonoki had a bunch of pre-match rituals that were followed. Some involved reciting a karakia to make yourself stronger, or to weaken an opponent. This was partially a practical and spiritual thing, 
where they believed they would actually receive aid from the gods, but there was an element of trying to get into the head of your opponent as well and psych them out. Like with a lot of sports, the mental game was sometimes just as important as the physical one. Next time, we will continue looking at games that require you to run around and be sweaty, such as hula hooping, rope swings, and waka races. In particular, we're going to take an in-depth look at a very famous Māori game, Ki Ōrahi. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the Te Reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.